I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Those are verses 23 to 28 of Psalm 73, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, November 4th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. We are continuing to look at um, the book of Ecclesiasticus or the Wisdom of Sirah, uh, which is chapter, we're going to be looking at chapter 50, verse 1, and then verses 11 to 24. Also in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, and then uh, the book of the Revelation, chapter 17, the first 18 verses there. So we're coming towards the end of this look at the book of, the, of Ecclesiasticus, um, but we're not there yet. <laughs> so anyway, we've, um, I'm not going to give any more heads up on, on what it is. I've done it enough. Uh, the leader of his brothers and the pride of his people was the high priest, Simon, son of Onius, who in his life repaired the house and in his time fortified the temple. So we're speaking about a particular person who served as high priest. <clears throat> when he put on his glorious robe and clothed himself in perfect splendor, and when he went up to the holy altar, he made the court of the sanctuary glorious. So the, the man himself brought glory and honor to the temple as he went up to the altar. When he received the portions from the hands of the priests, as he stood at the heart of the altar with a garland of brothers around him, he was like a young cedar on Lebanon, surrounded by the trunks of palm trees. All the sons of Aaron in their splendor held the Lord's offering in, his, in their hands before the whole congregation of Israel, finishing the service at the altars and arranging the offering to the Most High, the Almighty. He held out his hand for the cup and poured a drink offering of the blood of the grape. He poured it out at the foot of the altar, a pleasing odor to the Most High, the King of all. Then the sons of Aaron shouted. They blew their trumpets of hammered metal. They sounded a mighty fanfare as a reminder before the Most High. Then all the people together quickly fell to the ground on their faces to worship their Lord, the Almighty God Most High. You could just imagine a, a, a Jew, for instance, reading this um, or, or reflecting on it, and you see the, the, the powerful imagery of, of the beauty of the fullness of the worship. And you see the the priests, the Levites, all who are there, you see the sights, the sounds, the smells, all these things coming together in this worship. And you can see how the the people would respond to this with, this is one of the most glorious things I've ever seen. You can imagine exactly how they would feel about seeing this. And you can then begin to see a little bit of why there's such a desire to rebuild the temple, even in our day. It's hard to have lost your place of worship in, in this way, and they don't, they can't do the full worship of God that was ordained by Him because there's, they can't have the temple anywhere other than the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So they're sort of in, a, in between a rock and a hard place, and and can't, they they can only do instruction and, and certain worship in in other places, but the fullness of worship includes sacrifices and all that. Now it's it's interesting to me. I'd love to have a conversation with. Um, with a Jewish rabbi and say, do you really want 
to see lots and lots and lots of animals slaughtered for worship? I mean, is that something that you really look forward to? Or is there something more going on than that? Um, Maimonides, the Rambam, um, who was one of the greatest sages of all time, he was 13th century in Spain, he, um, he said that that, that that form of worship is not something that, that they should go back to because he, he basically argues that it was a dispensational thing. So there was a period of time when, in order for the Israelites to understand worship, it had to look like worship they were familiar with, worship the other nations did, and therefore God gave them this sacrificial system in order that that they would believe that they were worshiping and that this was real. But now they've transcended that, and and there's no longer a need for all these sacrifices if the temple is, is restored. So there, there are those who would disagree with that as well. Uh, but I really would love to hear what, what they would say I would like to see if the temple is rebuilt. I look forward to blah, 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 blah. Because uh, I can't imagine that too many of them would be looking forward to um, the idea of, of restarting a sacrificial system, especially with the number of uh, animals that would require to be sacrificed. Anyway, so the singers praised him with their voices, he, him, God, in sweet and full-toned melody. They would be the Levites, and the people of the Lord Most High offered their prayers before the Merciful One until the order of the worship was, of the Lord was ended, and they completed his ritual. Then Simon came down and raised his hands over the whole con- congregation of Israelites to pronounce the blessing of the Lord with his lips and a glory in his name. And they bowed down in worship a second time to receive the blessing from the Most High pronounced by the priest. And now bless the God of all who everywhere works great wonders, who fosters our growth from birth and deals with us according to his mercy. May he give us gladness of heart and may there be peace in our days in Israel as in the days of old. May he entrust to us his mercy and may he deliver us in our days. So there's a longing for the community to be able to gather in the place God appointed for worship, and the beauty of that worship then with singers, with the trumpets, with all the instrumentation that would have been there, with all the priests decked out in their finery, and the, the high priest himself adorning the entire worship as he, as he comes before the Most Holy God. You can understand why. They would want this so desperately and how many of them could only imagine this. You can also understand how in the time of Zechariah that the people, as they began to rebuild the temple, were overwhelmed at that idea because they they remembered, some of them did, how beautiful and wonderful it was before the Babylonian exile. And then to come back and have to first rebuild the walls of the city and then to begin to rebuild the temple itself— that the task would have been daunting, to say the least, especially for the group of exiles that came back, because it was only a portion of the people at that time. And so they could, they could see this and think, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to do this? But it's said that the glory of the second temple was even greater than the glory of the first temple, ultimately. In the um, gospel today, at that very same hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. What they're really trying to do is they've almost given up (laughs) trying to trick him. And so now what they're trying to do is get him to a place where where Jesus will just leave and just go away. They're they're, they're not concerned that Herod wants to kill Jesus. There's no thought of that at all. But they're playing off what happened to his cousin John and thinking, oh, okay, so we we will accuse Herod 
veiled of wanting to do the same thing to you that he did to John. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons to perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. So, no, you go ahead and tell him where I am. Tell him, tell him exactly where I am. I'm casting out demons, and I'm curing people. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet shall perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, yes, I'm traveling towards Jerusalem. Remember, a couple of chapters ago, several chapters ago now, Jesus, it was said that Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem to go there for the Passover. And so now, this, all the things that we've read so far are the things that happen on the way to Jerusalem for that final Passover. And so here Jesus is saying, nope, I'm not going to turn away from Jerusalem, which would have been where Herod was. I'm going that way. Uh, That's exactly where I am going, because it's impossible for a prophet to perish away from Jerusalem. They've, They've killed plenty of prophets there in the past. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. In other words, I've sent you these prophets, and I've sent people to you to call you to repentance, to call you back to me, and you wouldn't hear it. You wouldn't have any of it. You killed those prophets. It fits in with the stories that he tells, the the parable that he tells about the wicked tenants, where the the owner of the vineyard goes and establishes the vineyard, plants everything that's necessary, gets it ready to start producing, builds a wall around it, puts a wine press in it, does everything necessary. All they have to do is pick the grapes and then uh, make the wine, and they won't return him what he's owed for that when he sets it out to the tenants. And that's exactly the same thing Jesus is saying here. How often would I have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? I I want that relationship with you that pulls you in close to me and provides shelter and comfort and security for you and safety. But you wouldn't have that. You only wanted it on your terms. Well, I'm not acting on your terms. God doesn't act on our terms. It's his terms only, period, end of sentence. And so here, that's Jesus is saying, you know, I'm headed to Jerusalem because that's where I'm going to die. I wish that it were not this way, but I know it will be because this is the history of Jerusalem is a rejection of those who were sent to call her to repentance. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And which is exactly the reception that he gets, but not from the people in Jerusalem. If you follow those stories of the, the triumphal entry, what you really see is, is that, that the people who are, who are making that claim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David, are not the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're the pilgrims who have come with Jesus. Once he comes into the town, the mood changes and the Pharisees begin to say, hey, shut those people up going to cause a problem. So it's not the Jerusalemites who are welcoming him there. No, no, no. They're, they're far too cosmopolitan. They're far too compromised in so many ways to, to welcome him that way, unless he's truly going to come as the king that, well, they want, and he's not, so they're not going to welcome him that way. But ultimately, they will, because all the earth will welcome him that way. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, some for judgment, some for life. And that's the thing that that you want to be in the group of people that's celebrating that, because it means that that the kingdom has come, and it's being established, and the king is coming to take up his throne. In the epistle, in the in the reading from the Revelation, 
this one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, because the bowls of wrath that have already been poured out now, came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality, whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And so this is Babylon. Babylon is the great prostitute here. And in every age, there's a Babylon of some sort. Rome certainly was the Babylon of its day, the, the debauchery of Rome. Um, but, but everything, all roads lead to Rome, and that's because the trade routes were there. And so the, you could get anything in Rome. You could do anything in Rome, especially if you were the emperor. And the emperors became ever more debauched. They became ever more sexually immoral um, because ultimately there's only a certain, you know, relatively few number of actual pleasures to be had in the world. And so ultimately things go to debauchery. So, so if I can have pleasure in this, and that's an, that is a licit or an allowed pleasure, then how much better could the illicit pleasure be? And so that's exactly what happens is, is that, that things that are good become twisted into things that are not good. There's a right use of things, and then there's a wrong use of things. And, and that's exactly what, what was going on in Rome. There was a, certainly a right use of sex, and there was a right use of wine. There's a right use of food. But then there's a wrong use as well. And we need to make sure that we're using things the right way for their intended purposes. And that's what happens then, is the perversion happens. And what is a perversion? It's, it, it is taking something that's good and making it something that is no longer good. It's perverting the good thing. So he says, he carried me away, he, the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, so that would be two different things. That would be royalty, and it would also be, well, something a little bit sketchier than that. And she was adorned with gold and jewels, pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of Mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So the reality is, is that if you're pursuing righteousness, then, then you're just a rube and a joke. And ultimately, because you should be like John the Baptist, you should be a reminder to people that they have perverted God's good and turned it into something that's no longer good, then, then they will not tolerate that. Because they won't tolerate the judgment on what they do. They want it, they want you to recognize it as a good, because they recognize it as a good. In this society today, think about the insane things that we're asked on a constant basis now to, to recognize as good that, that are simply abominations. This whole transgender thing and the pronoun deal, and, and trying to make us play along with all these things and accept this as legitimate and good, what the medical community is doing, the psychiatric community is doing, and, and parents are doing, the schools are doing, no. We need to say no to that, and we need to be willing to say no to that and take the heat for it as well. Because ultimately, hopefully, they'll see. 
that this really is wrong. We have to we have to oppose things in certain kinds of ways, right? I mean, they, they want me to accept abortion as good. They want me to accept all kinds of things as good. And the, and the answer to that is I'm not going to do that, and I can't do that because I care. I care about you. I care about the harm it will do to you. I care about the harm that it does to these children. And, and I think we need to be careful and clear always that we're not going to go along with those things. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. There's something appealing and attractive about this, and that's exactly what what John sees is, is that I marveled greatly. It was something that caught my attention and fascinated me. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. In other words, it's going to be resurrected, but it's going to be resurrected to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. So the resurrection, they will marvel at it in the same way you, John, are marveling at this woman now. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There's seven hills of Rome, too, by the way. There are also seven kings, five of whom who have fallen. So they're already gone from the scene. One is, and another has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So this is prophecy. This was coming. And so what it says is it requires a mind with wisdom to understand the things that I'm getting ready to tell you. And so we can speculate, you know, endlessly on what this would be. It, it, It must have had a present application for John. But it must also have a, a, an application that, that we can identify with as well. And so, so hopefully John knew who the five were, who the one was, but he couldn't possibly have known the one who was to come. So there's endless speculation on this. Are we talking about Nero? Are we talking about people in that region? Or are we talking about people like Hitler and all that? <clears throat> as, and, and I don't know. <laughs> that's the simplest way that I can answer that for you is that I have no earthly idea. I don't dwell on this stuff. I don't, I don't spend time with this because I, I, I figure God will show me things as I need to know them. I, I, I don't, I don't want to avoid this, uh, but, I, but I can't possibly figure out who all these figures are in this thing. So what is the Babylon of our day, for instance? Okay, so that one seems to have, have um been referring to Rome at some level, but but that's not true in our day. So where what is it in our day? There's always a Babylon. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for an hour, for a brief period of time, together with the beast. These are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And so, you know, in my lifetime, I've heard people talk about things like the Trilateral Commission. Now it's the World Economic Forum. Before that, it was the Council on Foreign Relations. It's Henry Kissinger. It's all these, you know, there's, there's so much speculation that people want to engage in in this stuff. And it's not productive. It, it's wise to know the times. It's wise to pay attention to what's going on in the world and, and to see evil when evil is, is near in the world and to see the agenda for the world. But to, to put a name on these things is, is a very difficult and risky and iffy proposition, to be perfectly honest with you. So 
<clears throat> anyway, so they're of one mind, and they hand over their power and the authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So ultimately, what does it say is, is we don't have anything to worry about if we're in Christ, because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And ultimately, he conquers them. So, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, because that's exactly what we're told when, when we first meet this prostitute, she is seated on many waters. The waters you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and languages and nations. And so that, that, that's a familiar form of words from Revelation. It's used over and over and over again. In one place, early, the first place we see this idea of um, people, tongues, places, and, and nations has to do with the, those who are coming into the kingdom, those who participate in the life of the world to come. These, however, these peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages are those who will not participate. They are the ones who have been swayed and who marvel at, in a fascinated way, the, the prostitute. So they've been deceived. And the, so the, that's the waters that you see her seated upon, or these people. And the ten horns you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So was it Babylon? Was that the literal thing? Or was it Rome? Or what was it? We don't know. We have no earthly idea what that is. But the principle behind all of this is something that's so so easy to see. It's the fascination and the draw of sin. And they, they make it um, an allure. They make it look so enticing and so good that, that now even Christians are deceived into thinking these things are good. But no, we're called to have wisdom and discernment and we can be called to that because we've been given his spirit by which we would discern these things. We need to have the same attitude that the writer of Ecclesiasticus had toward the worship of the church. It needs to see the glory, the beauty, the honor, all of that in the Lord, not in this mess that we're looking at right here. But, it, but, but it's tempting, always.